Chapter 11, The Emotional Life of Christ. John 11:33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. One of the doctrines in the area of Christology that is difficult for some Christians to fully grasp is the permanent humanity of Christ. The impression often seems to be that the Son of God came down from heaven in incarnate form, spent three decades or so as a human, and then returned to heaven to revert back to his pre-incarnate state. But this is an error, if not outright heresy. The Son of God clothed himself with humanity and will never unclothe himself. He became a man and always will be. Never heard this before. This is the significance of the doctrine of Christ's ascension. He went into heaven with the very body, reflecting his full humanity that was raised out of the tomb. He is and always has been divine as well, of course, but his humanity, once taken on, will never end. In Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have our own flesh in heaven. One implication of this truth of Christ's permanent humanity is that when we see the feeling and passions and affections of the incarnate Christ towards sinners and sufferers as given to us in the four Gospels, we are seeing who Jesus is for us today. The Son has not retracted or retreated back into the disembodied divine state in which he existed before he took on flesh. And that flesh that the Son took on was full, true, complete humanity. Indeed, Jesus was the most truly human person who has ever lived. Ancient heresies such as Eutychianism and Monophytism viewed Jesus as a sort of blend between the human and the divine, a unique third kind of being, somewhere in between God and man. Heresies that were condemned at the fourth Ecumenical Council in Chalcedon in 451 AD. The Chalcedonian Creed that came out of that council speaks of Jesus as truly God and truly man, rather than a reduced blend of both. I don't understand why, like, what's the significance of what they're saying? It's wrong to say he's a blend between God and man, but that he's truly God and truly man. I don't know. Whatever it means to be human, Jesus was and is. And emotions are an essential part of being human. Our emotions are diseased by the fall, of course, just as every part of fallen humanity is affected by the fall. But emotions are not themselves a result of the fall. Jesus experienced the full range of emotions that we do. As Kelvin put it, the Son of God, having clothed himself with our flesh, of his own accord clothed himself also with human feelings, so that he did not differ at all from his brethren, except for not sinning. The great Princeton's theologian Warfield wrote a famous essay in 1912 called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. In it, he explored what the Gospels reveal about Christ's inner life.
what Warfield calls his emotional life. Warfield did not mean what we often mean by the word emotional, imbalanced, reactionary, driven by our feelings in an unhealthy way. He simply is noticing what Jesus felt. And as he reflects on Christ's emotions, Warfield notes repeatedly the way his emotions flow from his deepest heart. What then do we see in the Gospels of the emotional life of Jesus? What does a godly emotional life look like? It is an inner life of perfect balance, proportion, and control on the one hand, but also of extensive depth of feeling. Warfield reflects on various emotions that we see reflected in Jesus in the Gospels. Two of these, compassion and anger, are explored in a way that fills out our own study on the heart of Christ. Warfield begins his study of specific emotions in the life of Christ this way, quote, The emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to that Jesus whose whole life was a mission of mercy and whose ministry was so marked by deeds of benef beneficence that it was summed up in the memory of his followers as a going through the land doing good is no doubt compassion. You say, Jesus probably felt compassion the most. In point of fact, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. He then goes on to cite specific examples of Christ's compassion. Throughout, he is trying to help us see that Jesus did not simply operate in deeds of compassion, but actually felt the inner turmoils and roiling emotions of pity toward the unfortunate. When the blind and the lame and the afflicted appealed to Jesus, his heart responded with a profound feeling of pity for them. His compassion fulfilled itself in the outward act. But what is emphasized by the term employed to express our Lord's response is the profound internal movement of his emotional nature. Hearing the plea, for example, of two blind men, or that of the leper for cleansing, or simply seeing a distressed widow, it set our Lord's heart throbbing with pity. In each of these instances, Jesus is described as acting out of the same internal state. The Greek word splanzio, which often rendered as to have compassion, but the word denotes more than passing pity. It refers to a depth of feeling in which your feelings and longings churn within you. The noun form of this verb means most literally one's guts or intestines. Warfield is particularly insightful, however, on the implication of this compassion for how we understand who Jesus was and what his inner emotional life was actually like. Throughout his essay, Warfield reflects on the fact that Jesus is the one perfect human ever to walk the face of the earth. How, then, are we to understand his emotional life and an emotion such as compassion? What he helps us see is that Christ's emotions outstrip our own in depth of feeling because he was truly human and because he was a perfect human. 
Perhaps an example would clarify. I remember walking the streets of Bangalore, India, a few years ago. I had just finished preaching at a church in town and was waiting for my ride to arrive. Immediately outside the church grounds was an older man, apparently homeless, sitting in a large cardboard box. His clothes were tattered and dirty. He was missing several teeth. And what was immediately most distressing was his hands. Most of his fingers were partially eaten away. It was clear they hadn't been damaged by an injury, but had simply been eaten away over time. He was a leper. What happened in my heart in that moment? My fallen, prone-to-wander heart? Compassion. A little, anyway. But it was tepid compassion. The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. Fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Wow, that's interesting line. It says, fallen emotions not only sinfully overreact, they also sinfully underreact. Why was my heart so cool toward this miserable gentleman? Because I am a sinner. They're saying like, because we're fallen sinful people, like he didn't, he underreacted. Like that man should have drawn out a much deeper compassion from his heart. What then must it mean for a sinless man with full functioning emotions to lay eyes on that leper? Sin restrained my emotions of compassion. What would unrestrained emotions of compassion be like? That is what Jesus felt. Perfect, unfiltered compassion. What must that have been like, rising up within him? What would perfect pity look like? Mediated not through a prophetic oracle, as in the Old Testament, but through an actual real human. And what if that human were still a human, though now in heaven, and looked at each of us spiritual lepers with unfiltered compassion and outflowing affection, not limited by the sinful self-absorption that restricts our own compassion? And not only compassion, what would perfect anger look like? This is perfect or this is perhaps the key contribution of Warfield's seminal essay. And it may map on to a rising question in your own mind in the course of this study of the heart of Christ. Namely, how does this emphasis on Christ's heart, his gentle and lowly heart, his deep compassion, fit with the episodes of anger that we find in the Gospels? Are we being unhelpfully partial if we focus on his gentleness, is he not also wrathful? Consider what Warfield says as he begins to explore the anger of Jesus. After noting that it is a matter of moral perfection, not only to distinguish between good and evil, but to be positively drawn toward one and repelled by the other, he says, It would be impossible, therefore, for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what we mean 
by a moral being is a being perceptive of the difference between right and wrong and reacting appropriately to right and wrong. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being as such and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. Warfield is saying that a morally perfect human such as Christ would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. Perhaps we feel that to the degree we emphasize Christ's compassion, we neglect his anger, and to the degree we emphasize his anger, we neglect his compassion. But what we must see is that the two rise and fall together. A compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him. The severity and human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. No, compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. It is the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. Consider Jesus' anger through the following logical I don't know this word. Premise one. Moral goodness revolts with indignant anger against evil. Premise two. Jesus was the epitome of moral goodness. He was morally perfect. In the conclusion, Jesus revolted against evil with indignant anger more deeply than anyone. Same, because Jesus is perfect. He had, yeah, he the most angry at evil. Yes, Jesus pronounced searing denunciations on those who caused children to sin, saying it would be better fate if they were drowned, not because he gleefully enjoys torturing the wicked, but most deeply because he loves his children. It is his heart of love, not a gleeful exacting of justice that rises up from his soul to elicit such a fearsome pronouncement of woe. Likewise, with the sustained pronouncement of judgment on the scribes and Pharisees through Matthew 23, what fuels such terrifying censures? It is his concern for those being misled and mistreated by these revered religious PhDs. Those who listen to these teachers are being given heavy burdens hard to bear. These dear people are being made twice as much a child of hell as the scribes and Pharisees are. In short, the scribes and Pharisees are guilty of the blood of a whole string of righteous prophets. Their heart for the people was the opposite of Jesus' heart. They wished to use the people to build themselves up. Jesus wished to serve the people to build them up. Jesus wanted to gather people under his wings the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What about driving the money changers out of the temple? That wasn't exactly a very gentle thing to do. How does his heart fit with that? We're actually told that Jesus made the whip himself. Picture him there, off alone, weaving back and forth, calmly constructing the weapon by which he would ferociously drive out the money changers, flipping over their tables. 
But why did he do it? Because they had perverted the use of the temple. This was the house of God, the one place where sinners could come and offer sacrifices and enjoy fellowship with God. Reassurance of his flavor and grace. It was to be a place of prayer, of blessed interchange between God and his people. The money changers were the ones doing the real overturning, overturning the temple from a place to know and see God to a place to make money. What we are saying is that, yes, Christ got angry and still gets angry, for he is the perfect human who loves too much to remain indifferent. And this righteous anger reflects his heart, his tender compassion. But because his deepest heart is tender compassion, he is the quickest to get angry and feels anger most furiously, and all without a hint of sin tainting that anger. The clearest example of Christ's righteous anger in the Gospels is the death of Lazarus in John 11, where the verb used in verse 33 to describe Jesus' inner state is one of profound fury. Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. The emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Hmm. Warfield goes on to consider the role that the Lazarus episode plays in John's gospel as a whole. Note the way he ties in the heart of Christ. Inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is dear, or it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may be filling his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt he has felt for he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of those feelings has wrought out our redemption. While Christ is a lion to the impenitent or un, un, unrepentant, he's a lion to the unrepentant. He is a lamb to the penitent, the ones who do repent. The reduced, the open, the hungry, the desiring, the confessing, the self-effacing. He hates with righteous hatred all that plagues you. Remember that Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. He wasn't only punished in our place, experiencing something we never will. He also suffered with us, experiencing what we ourselves do. In your grief, he is grieved. In your desires, he is distressed. 
or no, in, in your distress, he is distressed. Are you angry today? Let us not be too quick to assume our anger is sinful. After all, the Bible positively in orders us to be angry when occasion calls for it. <sighs> Perhaps you have reason to be angry. Perhaps you have been sinned against, and the only appropriate response is anger. Be comforted by this. Jesus is angry alongside you. He joins you in your anger. Indeed, he is angrier than you could ever be about the wrong done to you. Your just anger is a shadow of his. And his anger, unlike yours, has zero taint of sin in it. As you consider those who have wronged you, let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted, for it is an anger that springs from his compassion for you. The indignation he felt when he came upon mistreatment of others in the Gospels is the same indignation he feels now in heaven upon mistreatments of you. In that knowledge, release your debtor and breathe again. Let Christ's heart for you not only wash you in his compassion, but also assure you of his solidarity in rage against all that distresses you, and most certainly, death and hell. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. I was just reading the other day, and I find the verse, and I read it a few times because it really hit me. He said, um, it's in Mark... Passion and anger in the same thing. And I thought that was really interesting. Ah, uh, yeah, it says, so, he entered into the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand is Mark chapter 3. And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. So the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see if he'll heal somebody on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. Then he said to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save a life or to kill, but they kept silent. And after looking around them, uh, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he was healed. So it's just interesting. He's like looking at the Pharisees. He's angry at them, 
and at the same time his heart. He's grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Interesting. I hope you have a wonderful day. Um, I've had a nice morning watering the plants. I'm gonna try and maybe get some wood split today. Okay, I love you.